0: Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Is everybody having a good day? I hope so. Good time of worship this morning. That was awesome. So thankful for Jason, Lisa, Alex, everybody leading us up here. That was fantastic. We are in the last message of the Created to Connect series. That's your last time hearing that music, uh, which is very fun music. But this is the end of it here, and uh, it's been, honestly, the most challenging message and series I have ever preached through, and so I'm kind of excited. Uh, that it's over today. (laughs) We've got one more to get through. I hope you've gotten something good out of it along the way and uh, that it's something that will be useful for you even in the future as as you go back to it and get to hear that music again anytime you watch a message again. I need to give you two warnings about the message today. The first one, is that we are going to talk about a very sensitive and challenging topic that is particularly heightened in its sensitivity today in our in our world today these last few years especially and we 're going to talk about it in some pretty um, Blunt terms in cases, I'm not going to shy away from some terminology, so parents, if you've got kids with you or watch online right now, you just need to be aware of that, and there are certain conversations about gender that if you have not already had them, you will have to if they watch this message, and that may be a good thing. That may be okay. You just need to know that ahead of time. The second warning is that this message is going to be long, and so I've already warned our kids' ministry. That uh, this will take a little bit longer than normal. I don't know how much longer. We will see where things go. But you just need to know that this is one of those where you could almost split it up into two different messages. But then you really need to understand the whole thing together as a unit. And so I do think it's important for us to cover this all today. Now, next weekend is going to seem pretty light in here. If you didn't already know, we've got Pinecrest Family Retreat happening next week. So a lot of us are going to be there, and it's going to be super fun for those that go, but it'll also be super fun for those that are here. So I don't want you to feel too left out. Uh, you still still come back. Okay, Adam Ward's going to be speaking at the Pinecrest Retreat. Bill Jones is going to be speaking here, so you've got two great options. I'm going to be at the Pinecrest Retreat there, so really looking forward to that. And then in two weeks, we're going to go back to the book of Acts. Do you remember the book of Acts? <laughs> the book of Acts, we went through part one and two, and there is a three, and it's coming. So part three is called To the Ends of the Earth. That is coming up in a couple of weeks, so make sure you're here back for that. Today, We are going to talk about arguably the most challenging topic, at least given our current world today in this entire series, and that is the issue of gender. Now to get here, we've talked about some foundation stones. We've talked about God's design for relationships and intimacy and sex. We've talked about boundaries in sex. Now we're going to shift gears to talk about something that's related to sex, but has a lot more to do with identity. A few decades ago, Our culture was gradually moving toward accepting the idea that same-sex attraction was an aspect of identity, and so it should just be accepted and lived out and acted upon regardless of what God has to say in his word. And in the last decade, and especially in the last few years, transgenderism has become the new frontier for identity questions. And what I want us to do today is to try to understand What transgender means and is, at a very high level, a brief overview, what the Bible has to say, what Christians should do to respond to transgender issues, think about transgender issues, respond to people who have questions about gender, and especially for people who have gender questions themselves and are wrestling with their gender identity, what principles might the Bible have that will help you to address what you are going through. You need to understand that this area is so uh, complex and nuanced and fast moving right now that it will be very difficult to cover all of those nuances today and, and I wouldn't even necessarily be capable or qualified to do that. What I wanna do is give you a very basic overview of the core aspects of this issue and gender questions in general. And then I really want to focus on, does the Bible have something to say about this that that may apply, that we need to understand? And actually, I think what we're going to dive into are some aspects of the Bible that may not often be brought to bear on these questions, but I think are worth looking at. Before we get into it, we need to understand terms. I need to define my terms so that you know what I mean when I use a word or a phrase. And we're going to start off with the word, words biological sex. Biological sex, that's male or female based on your chromosomes. Males are distinguished from females by a Y chromosome. Our, sex, our biological sexes are a binary. You have two basic options, male or female. When we're born, they don't have to test our chromosomes to determine male or female because those chromosomes usually result, in almost all cases, in a clear genitalia. And so it's obvious whether you're male or you're female biologically, and that gets put on your birth certificate. Uh, There are lots of nuances to this that have been explored recently with different conditions and abnormalities in chromosomes and things like that. Honestly, those are beyond the scope of this message, and really, they don't have a lot of relevance in the outcome and the principles that I'm going to share with you today. I'm aware of those things, but generally speaking, we see two biological sexes, male and female. Then there's a word, gender. Gender is a grammatical category, in fact, throughout uh, history, the last several hundred years, that is often how it's been utilized, is you have a gender when it comes to language. We don't think about this in English a lot. We don't have a lot of words that are that are gender-specific words. And even regardless of the language and how they use gender and gender categories in language, by the way, this does not necessarily have anything to do with male and female. This is a, a grammatical category. And sometimes they defy what we would think of as a normal grammatical category. For instance, I am told, and maybe if any of you speak this language, you could confirm this for me or not, but I am told that the French word for beard is feminine, and so that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, Maybe it makes sense to you, but it it doesn't always align with what we would think of as a male or female as far as language and gender. But that's the grammatical category side of things. The one that we're going to talk about today is the second one, which is behavioral, cultural, or psychological traits typically associated with one sex. And that's the definition of gender we're going to be talking about today. Behavioral, cultural, or psychological traits typically associated with one sex. Sex and gender, those words, sex and gender, hundreds, for hundreds of years were basically considered synonyms for each other. There are examples of that going back over 500 years. And going back 60 years in this country, most people, when they were identifying male versus female, would not use the word gender. They would use the word sex. If you filled out a form, it would say sex colon M." box, F a box, which one are you? And that was the word that was used. And then over several decades, the word gender in the 20th century, second half of the 20th century started to replace sex. Maybe it was considered a a nicer way to say it, a more polite way to say it, a kinder way to say it. But as a synonym for sex, the word gender started to be used instead. And then gradually, the majority of forms and even literature started to use the word gender to refer to male and female instead of sex. And so a lot of us grew up in an era where gender and sex were just treated synonymously for us. Gender means male, female. Sex means male, female. gender's a nicer way to say it. In the 1970s, feminist groups started to use the word gender in a new and specific way that was not really common for the prior few hundred years. And they started to use the word gender to refer not to sex difference among people, but the socially constructed stereotypes that are often associated with sex different among, difference among people. In other words, they started to separate the idea of your sex, male, female, biologically, from gender, which is a socially, for them, in their new definition, a socially constructed aspect that is associated with sex, but might not always be linked with the same sex. And they did this so that they could have clear terms articulating when they were talking about socially constructed aspects of men and women versus biological aspects of men and women. And that's a helpful conversation to have. Societies have often gotten off track because they've gotten too wrapped up in stereotypes for different categories of groups and and including men and women. And churches and Christians have been guilty of this many times where we start to misunderstand maleness to be a whole package of things that society says are more masculine, and then anyone who doesn't fit that mold then could feel like less of a a man and be excluded from things and feel othered or even be mocked and ridiculed sometimes because, well, the rest of the men like hunting and fishing and whatever else, you know, tackle football, and this man likes to dance and, and be into the arts and other things, or whatever your example is, if they don't fit the sociological stereotype... For maleness, they can start to feel othered. The same thing is true for women in reverse, women that maybe don't have as much of an interest in raising kids or or don't have the same kind of um, likes and dislikes that a lot of other women in society have. They can feel very excluded because of those stereotypes and left out for not holding to social norms when it comes to uh, their biological sex or what we would in the past call their gender. So the next logical leap And progression in this is to say that, well, if sex and gender are kind of two different things, they're related, but they're two different things, then maybe people who don't align with the stereotypes associated with their sex actually have a gender or a gender identity that is different from their sex. And so if you're a biological male, but you're interested in things that might stereotypically be associated more with females, maybe you, ha- you are a biological male, but you are- your gender identity is as a woman. And so along with that, we're- other words have kind of um, gotten tweaked definitions as well, where men and women, those words in popular culture have started to become more associated with the gender side of things, and male and female have become more associated with the sex side of things. And so you have a biological male and a biological female, but you have a gender identity man and a gender identity woman. This is not universal. This is fast-changing, but this is generally speaking what seems to be out there today in our culture and in the, the literature and the media today, just to understand those terms. And all of that leads us to another term, transgender. Now, I want to give you a definition that comes from Dr. Mark Yarhouse in his book on gender identities. He said, transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. What's he saying there? Trans is a word in Latin that means to cross over, and so transgender people cross over from their biological sex to a gender identity that is not usually associated with that sex. Um, They are different from people who align, who have congruence between their biological sex and their gender expression. Uh, That's another phrase similar to gender identity, Uh, but there are people... Who feel like their gender identity or their gender expression is different than their biological sex, and so they would be under this umbrella term of transgender. This started primarily with males transing, crossing over to present as women, or females transing or crossing over to present as men, Uh, but then that led to thinking of gender not just as separated and distinct from sex but now as a spectrum because if it's not really connected to this binary of biological sex and you've got men on the one side women on the other side well i'm i'm more mask i'm a, maybe a biological female but i'm more masculine in how i do things but i'm not like all the way 100% i'm 75% you know i still got 25% that's more aligns with the female gender identity and so it's maybe a spectrum where you could be at different points along this spectrum and then even more recently, this has um, evolved to to where you've got more people today saying we shouldn't look at this as a spectrum and a line between men and women. It's actually more like a kaleidoscope, or some people actually use the illustration of a unicorn, and it's just very, very different possibilities all over the place for what this could look like. It's not just male and female. There are lots of other options for how you could view your gender identity. Just to give you a few examples of this, in case you're not as familiar with this topic, uh, some of some people would say that their gender is agender, or they would say al- there's an alien gender, there's ambigender, there's bigender, demigender, gender, fluid gender, queer, polygender, pangender, third gender, two-spirit, and I'm just giving you a handful. There are many, many more, and, and potentially infinitely more. Because if gender is a socially constructed concept, then you can have as many genders as the society wants to construct. And so there are new uh, labels that people are adopting all the time, and sometimes they get merged together and, and they get written about in different papers and things like that. And this leads to a very important thing for all of us to understand, especially if you are someone who does not struggle with gender identity. And, and that is the majority of people, statistically speaking. It's very easy to think of transgender people as a monolithic group, as all moving in one direction, having an agenda. Having, and that is not the way to think about people who would consider themselves to be transgender. As Dr. Mark Yarhouse puts it, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. Every story is unique. The experiences are very, very different, and you cannot try to lump people together. Some people consider themselves transgender, and as far as that goes for them, it's a way that they feel internally that's different than the way that their body presents externally, and that may just be um, something that they don't actually do much with other than it's how they feel. For some people, they consider themselves transgender. And they will wear often, maybe not always, clothing that more aligns with a different gender than their own. Some people feel that there is such an incongruence between their internal sense of gender and their external presentation of their biological body that they will actually go further and take medications or go through hormone therapy uh, or even have surgery to try to bring their body in line with their internal experience of gender. And that leads us to a phrase called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria, according to Dr. Yarhouse, refers to the distress associated with incongruence between one's biological sex and gender identity. And you can understand why I wanted to give you those other terms before I got to this definition, because you need to understand even how we got to this separation of sex and gender or gender identity before we get to this definition for gender dysphoria. It is important for Christians to understand that gender dysphoria is a real thing. Until recently, it was classified as a disorder. It's been recently reclassified as more of a distress than a disorder, and I'm not saying any of that has any meaning to me. That's just kind of how it's looked at by psychologists in the world, but there are historical examples of something like gender dysphoria that go back throughout human history in lots of different cultures. Euphoria is when you feel good, right? Well, dysphoria is when you feel bad, and sometimes you feel really bad, and you have no idea why. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt bad or miserable or even depressed, and you're like, I can't even tell you a cause. I'm just crying right now. Has anybody ever felt that way? I mean, if we're being honest, okay, I've felt that way. All right, only this half has ever felt that way. This half, nothing. <laughs> you guys are just stoic and even keel, so mature. So the real question for us is, if we are feeling a dysphoria or a distress about how our gender expression and identity feels inside and what our biological body shows on the outside, how do we treat that? What do we do when our brain and our body don't line up? And really, a question for us to wrestle with today is, do the world and the Bible offer different paths for people? who are struggling with gender dysphoria. It's a real thing, but what do we do with that? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? I've had many conversations with lots of different people on this topic, and a lot of the time people will say the Bible speaks about homosexuality, but it doesn't really say anything about transgenderism, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think there's actually a little bit more in there than we realize. We have to try to look at the biblical principles And see, is there a way that this applies for those people? In particular, I'm thinking of Christians primarily who are struggling with their gender identity. Those are the ones I I most want to help with this. I want people who are not Christians to come to Jesus Christ, first of all, as their Savior. And then I want to help those Christians wrestle with their gender dysphoria in a healthy biblical way. But primarily, I'm thinking of people who are Christians, or hopefully will become Christians, and what do they do if they're looking at these foundation stones we talked about from God's Word, what do they do with that feeling of gender incongruence between our modern definition of gender and our biological sex? Now, the popular approach in our world today is to say, if you have gender dysphoria, it probably means you were born in the wrong body. And and so your body doesn't match your brain, and it's your body that's wrong. Your brain is right. Your body is wrong, and if you can get your body to match your brain, then that will help to treat and alleviate or hopefully eradicate the dysphoria that you feel, the distress that you feel because of this incongruence that's just gnawing at you. And this approach to treating gender dysphoria went mainstream with universities first and then hospitals and school systems and media organizations and even large financial companies getting on board with it and and pushing that idea of that approach to treating gender dysphoria. You've got to get your body to match your brain. And if you'll go through the steps to do that, then that's the best path for you. So, what does the Bible say? There is actually a passage, there's a few passages that speak to this issue, maybe even a little more than we realize. And they're ones that we haven't talked about a lot that I've seen in in the Christian community on this topic. The first one I'm going to take you to is Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22.5. It says, A woman must not put on men's clothing, and a man must not wear women's clothing. Anyone who does this is detestable in the sight of the Lord your God. Now, pause whatever thoughts are going through your mind right now, because we need to take a moment to unpack what this means and maybe what this doesn't mean. Some people have suggested that this command in the Old Testament was specifically for pagan ritual worship, and there's just virtually no evidence that that is actually what it's talking about here specifically, exclusively. Uh, If... If that is what the law was meant to prohibit and only that, the language existed to communicate that, but it's not there in the text. It does not say anything about this being specific to pagan ritual worship. It gives it as a blanket command. It may have included this practice in pagan ritual worship, but the command itself is not written to be specifically for that. So I don't think that's a very good argument. But just like the passages we went through last week in Leviticus, We have to keep in mind that this is part of the Mosaic Covenant, a covenant which you and I today, as followers of Jesus, if you are, are not under. We are under a new covenant, not the old covenant. But this law is very different in how it is written than almost all the other laws given in the Mosaic Covenant, which is very interesting. But before I get into that, the first thing that this verse tells me is that the idea of cross-dressing or wearing different or one aspect of transgenderism was very much a thing back thousands of years ago. This is not just a modern phenomenon. This is something that has existed. There are examples of it in other cultures throughout history as well. And the fact that we get a law about this in Judaism is very interesting because transgenderism was never a major issue in Judaism. It has never been. It wasn't in the days of Jesus. It wasn't in the Old Testament But it was evidently um, known enough and common enough as a potential issue that it warranted there being a law written about it. Today, uh, as I understand it, the research indicates that perhaps 0.6% of the population struggles with gender dysphoria of some kind. And that means out of every thousand people, six people might struggle with gender dysphoria. That may have been just as true back then. Uh, I don't know. It is possible that it has increased since then. Perhaps it was more rare and, and now it's it's more common today. And that certainly seems to be the case, just if you look around and you see a great what a seemingly greater prevalence. Is it possible that it's always been there, but people haven't been as open about it? That's possible. Is it possible that there is an increase today in people experiencing gender dysphoria and that maybe even environmental factors? or dietary changes or food supply changes or chemicals or plastics or other things play a role in how our body is absorbing chemicals and manufacturing hormones and how that could lead to an increase in gender dysphoria, all of that I think is possible. In many countries today, the the um, levels of testosterone in men are lower than the levels that they experienced 50 years ago at the same age, and so there there does seem to be a decrease in certain hormones, and, and I've read a lot of material about this, and it seems like there's not a conclusive thing we can point to as to why, lots of theories about why that may be, but the one thing that does seem to be clear is that there are changes from 50 years ago to today in some of the hormone levels in people, and I've also seen studies that indicate that Hormone levels in the unborn can have an impact on the experience of gender dysphoria later on after a child is born. And so it's been observed that higher testosterone levels in unborn girls result in a higher likelihood of gender dysphoria as they grow up. Lower testosterone levels in boys, conversely, result in a higher instance of gender dysphoria when they grow up. And I'm not here to get into the science of all that. It really doesn't have a huge bearing on what I'm going to tell you in the end, but I I think it's important for us to understand is that it is literally possible that people are born with a higher likelihood of experiencing gender dysphoria, not something that they chose not even necessarily something that happened to them in childhood or even their environment. All of those things could play a role. There are multiple factors. It could even be greater today than it was in the past, and there are plausible explanations for that. That's what I want you to, to understand and take away from that. But just like there are many other conditions and syndromes and predispositions and other things that you inherit, it's very possible that, that people are just born with a higher likelihood of experiencing gender dysphoria. But what's so unique about this law in Deuteronomy here is that it is one of the few times that God tells us how he views this activity. Most of the laws are written and just say, do this or don't do this. Do this, don't do this. But this law is one of the few times where we're actually told what God thinks about people when they do this. It says it's detestable to him or it's disgusting to him that seems harsh. Why might that be? I have a three-year-old daughter. Her name is Ari, and she loves to play with kinetic sand. Does anyone know what kinetic sand is? Okay, all of the parents and the teachers just raised their hands. (laughs) Kinetic sand is sand that's been mixed with some kind of binding agent. I don't know how it works. It's magic, but it's sort of like Clay ish that you can assemble things and make things with it, but then you can crumble them and make new things with it, and it seems to last forever. As it gets more and more junk in it, it just gets gross, but it's awesome to play with. And my daughter Ari loves to play with kinetic sand. She really likes it when I make castles with her. So a week ago, I was playing with her, and uh, we had it all out on the table, and she wanted me to build a castle, and so I did. I built this castle, and I, I I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I try to make a really good-looking castle, you know? And I put this thing together, and she's making her own thing, and she's kind of helping a little bit here and there, and she looks over at my castle, and and I I go, what do you think? Isn't that cool? And she goes, wow, that's amazing. And then she immediately took her hand, lifted it over the castle, and went, and just squashed it. (laughs) Now, I'm an adult (laughs) with a tremendous amount of maturity and cool-headedness, but I must admit, I was so disgusted with her in that moment. So disgusted, and I thought to myself, and because I'm a mature adult, I didn't say it out loud, but I thought to myself, I just built that, and the first thing you did with it is mess it up. It's kind of a dumb analogy, and it's not a perfect analogy by any stretch, but I think it helps us maybe to understand This idea of God being disgusted or finding detestable some of the things we might do with our bodies that he gave us in saying, I don't like the way you made me, and so I'm going to try to present as something else. And the text says rather harshly, God finds that activity detestable. And it does sound very harsh. But when you think about the fact that he's the creator and someone says, I'm literally going to try to go against the way you created, maybe it's reasonable for him to say, I just built that. Why are you now trying to mess it up? Genesis 1.26, we've spent a lot of time in Genesis, but we're going to go back there real quickly. It says, God is saying here, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then here's the thing. With a binary, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, reproduce. Those two unique things come together, reproduce, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, all the animals that scurry along the ground. God's design from the very beginning was for men and women to come together with their complementary aspects of their two different categories and partner up so that they could reproduce, use that uniqueness God gave them to make more people like them and fill the earth and thrive and oversee this beautiful world. What the law in Deuteronomy makes me think is that God is looking at these people that he has designed and the structure that he's designed, and they go against that design, and it, it disgusts him. He's like, I just built that. And I made you a certain way, and now you're rebelling against the way I made you. Now, does this verse in Deuteronomy present a law that is binding on us as Christians today? No, it does not. It is part of the Mosaic Covenant. But does it give us a window into God's perspective on this kind of behavior and activity? Well, it certainly seems like it does. More so than all the laws that just say do this, don't do this, and don't really tell you, is this something that, Is like God views it a certain way, or is it just a command for now? But this one actually says, God actually is disgusted when people go against his design in this way. And of course, the question then is, does this concept get repeated in the New Testament? Is it just an Old Testament thing that happens to give us this idea, this unique thing of how God views it? Or is there something we can point to in the New Testament and say, okay, it seems like this might be consistent throughout, and there actually is. There is a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking, and he seems to say something very similar that at least supports the idea that God doesn't want us to go against his design in this area of gender. And here's what he says. Isn't it obvious, Paul is speaking, that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy, for it has been given to her as a covering? But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. I so wish that Alec had been leading worship today, because he's got just this beautiful head of long hair, and I would love to just absolutely lay into him right now. (laughs) Obviously, I'm joking. This passage has been very confusing to many people, but I think when you understand it in its context, it can make a lot more sense. In the culture at the time, the Corinthian culture, the women wore long hair. If men wore long hair, it was saying something. Scholars think that it might have indicated something about their sexual preference, maybe their homosexuality or male prostitution or different things like that. But one thing was clear in that culture, the natural thing for them was for the men to have short hair and the women to have long hair. Ben Witherington, a biblical commentator, says this, I would suggest that Paul places little stock in social or cultural conventions or social status and a great deal of stock in the way God has made human beings and is remaking them in Christ for Paul human duality maleness and femaleness is good and is to be celebrated just as the interdependence of male and female is to be appreciated maleness and femaleness are part of the order of creation and are also reaffirmed in certain ways in the new creation In God and Paul's view People are redeemed as men and women of God and are to continue to be men and women, not some neutered or neutral third sort of creature. It is possible and likely in light of chapter 7, that's chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, that some in Corinth thought that through knowledge or other spiritual gifts and experiences that they transcended distinctions of gender in Christian worship. What's going on here? Paul is concerned that men are trying to appear as women and women are trying to appear as men in some way. And that may communicate other meaning beyond that, but he doesn't get into that. That's not the issue that he raises here. The issue that he raises here is, hey, it's not natural in your culture, in your custom for you to be crossing these gender norms. Is it a, is it a stereotype? Yeah, it's a stereotype. Uh, you look at Samson. Long hair that God said, keep it long, buddy. Even Paul, at one time, took a vow and did not cut his hair for a while, and then he shaved his head after that so it 's not that paul's against long hair, just to be clear here, but he's saying that and, and this is all in response to stuff that he 's heard from the people in Corinth, right so evidently he has heard reports that there are men who are are kind of looking like women, and that communicates something in this culture, and he's saying don't don't do that don't don't go against the gender norms for your society. Um, And he says, if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. Let me give you another example of this very quickly. Paul at one point says, I want women to dress modestly, not with braided hair, not with gold jewelry. Is he actually saying that braided hair and gold jewelry are a problem? No. He's saying, I want you to dress modestly. That's the principle. And in that time, braided hair and gold jewelry communicated something about those women. And he says, I don't want you to do that. So there's a principle, and then there's this cultural example of the principle. Paul's not saying it's sinful for men to have long hair. Um, There's a related issue where Paul talks about genital surgery. And he says in 1 Corinthians 7, and this is that chapter that the commentator was referencing, Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you. And remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. And he goes on to talk about how this is specifically about circumcision. This is about genital surgery. This is, this is, there are some people who have trusted Christ and they were never circumcised. And now they're wondering, maybe I should get circumcised. And Paul says, no, stay in the condition you were when God called you and how the Lord placed you. And there are other people who got circumcised because they were Jewish. And they come to Christ and they realize, shoot, I didn't need to do that. And then for some reason, and I don't know the background on all of this, but evidently there was a thing where it was like, hey, we can kind of do something to reverse that. And I I know today there's a thing about that. I didn't realize there was back then. And he says, "Don't, don't change. Don't surgically alter the way you are. That's not what's important right now. So then he says in verse 20, yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. So there's a principle here. Of not trying to alter your body, not focusing on that, but remaining content with where you are with what you have. So to to sum this up, in the Old Testament, we saw a command about not trying to present as a different gender than God gave you with regard to clothing. In the New Testament, we saw the same basic principle with regard to hairstyles, as well as this thing about not having surgery to alter your body as different from how the Lord placed you and when he called you. And if you approach all of this from God's perspective, I think it makes sense. He is the creator, he's your creator. Was God involved in making your body? Did God have a hand in making your body or did it just sort of happen? Was God involved? Was God involved in making your body? It's not a trick question. I know it sounds like a trick, it really sounds like I'm setting you up. Psalm 139, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. So who made your body? God did. Even the delicate parts, even the internal parts. You are wonderfully complex. You're a work of art. But you say, I'm not happy with every aspect of that work of art. And understandably so. I'm not a fan of that work of art. I would like a do-over. Who wants a do-over? You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) There are aspects of this work of art that I don't particularly care for. I would have liked a smaller nose. I'm too short. I'm not very athletic. uh, I came with a, a disability in my work of art. There are all sorts of things we can point to and say, I don't really like how this work of art ended up being. And it's true. I think all of us are tempted at times to be unhappy with how God made us. And for some of us, that develops into deeply ingrained distress or discouragement, dysphoria, even bitterness about our bodies. We can resent our bodies. Job felt that way. I found this really interesting this week. You remember the story of Job, how everything was great for him, and then all of a sudden he lost his kids, and he lost his wealth, and he came down to this terrible sickness that affected his body, and he had no idea why it was happening. He didn't know. We're told that it was because Satan was doing this to him and God allowed it to demonstrate Job's faith. But Job doesn't know that. And so here's his prayer to God. He says in Job 10.1, I am disgusted with my life. Let me complain freely. This is some of my kids' life first, sometimes. <laughs> my bitter soul must complain. Sorry, Jax. I will say to God, don't simply condemn me. Tell me the charge you are bringing against me. What do you gain by oppressing me? Why do you reject me? Listen to this, the work of your own hands. I'm the work of your own hands. And yet it feels like you're rejecting me. Think he's feeling distress here? Think he's feeling agony here? In verse four, he says, are your eyes like those of a human? Do you see things only as people see them? Is your lifetime only as long as ours? Is your life so short that you must quickly probe for my guilt and search for my sin? then he says, although you know I am not guilty, no one can rescue me from your hands. You formed me with your hands. You made me. Yet now you completely destroy me. This is some serious dysphoria, some serious distress from Job, who thinks that God has done this to him, but he has no idea why. He knows that God formed him and made him, but now it feels like God is destroying him and his body and his life, and he's in agony, he's miserable, he's depressed, he's experiencing a dysphoria, and it seems like it came out of nowhere for no reason with no fault of his own, and he is right. God even says it wasn't his fault. Look at Job, he's blameless. And Satan says, yeah, but he'll curse you if I do all this to him. And God says, no, he won't. His faith is too strong. Go ahead. Within these parameters, you can do what you want to him and his body, but he won't curse me. This is not Job cursing God. This is Job pleading, asking, coming to God with his problem. It's actually a beautiful thing to do that, to cry out to God in our distress and say, God, why? I believe in you. I know you for me. I know you made me. There must be a reason, but I don't know what it is. It wasn't Job's fault. He did not choose this. It wasn't because he sinned. But it was part of a bigger plan to show Job's faith and reveal God's glory. Reminds me of this encounter in John chapter nine. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Jesus says, It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. How early did this man experience blindness? How early was he blind? From birth, right? Did he choose it? No. Was it caused by something he didn't know? Was Was his parents something his parents didn't know? So why did God allow this to happen? so that the power of God could be seen in him. And then you know what happened in the story? Jesus healed him. This man becomes a witness for Jesus to the whole community. He goes into the religious leaders and they're questioning him on this and he shares his story and testifies about Jesus there. They bring his parents in. His parents say, yep, he really was born blind and now he can see and we don't understand all of that. And the guy says, it's Jesus that did it. And do you know what the religious leaders did with this man? They mocked him because he was born blind. They ridiculed him Because of a condition that he didn't even have anymore that he did not choose that he was born with. And Jesus said, this was allowed because it's part of God's plan. So that the power of God could be seen in him. The world says that your body is wrong. And your brain is right. The Bible says that God made you the way you are for a reason. Your body may be right. And your brain may need some updating. Paul actually talks about this in Romans chapter 12. He says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship. And he says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. That could be written right for today. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing your body. No, by changing your brain, by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Your body came from God. It was designed by God, intricately formed by God. Even its flaws are allowed by God for specific purposes. And Paul pleads with Christians here, you and I, to offer our bodies as living and holy sacrifices to God. He says doing this is actually an act of worship toward God. Don't copy the behavior or customs of this world. Let God transform you into a new person by changing your brain the way you think. Then he says, you will learn to know God's goodwill, and it'll be good, pleasing, and eventually perfect. The world says your brain is right, your body is wrong. God says, I made your body, your brain may need some new thinking. So what do you do? If you're a follower of Jesus and you are wrestling with gender identity and gender expression, gender dysphoria, what do you do with that? Can I give you a few suggestions that lead to much more? But just very quickly here, for Christians struggling with gender, the first thing I would recommend you do is you pray. Think about Job's prayer. It was raw. It was real. And I know the studies show most transgender people pray and ask God to take it away. I get that. But you need to start with prayer. Don't end there, but start with prayer. And then read some of the transgender information that's on our website at created 2 connect. At and there are books and resources there that you can read that will, will give you some thoughts about this that go way beyond what I can share here today. In particular, there's a book called Embodied that I think does an excellent job of uh, handling this subject. Talk with a Christian counselor. And I would emphasize a Christian counselor. If they're not Christian and they don't start from a biblical worldview, and not all Christian counselors are, are, are good either, but if they don't at least start from a biblical worldview, Your outcome is not going to align with God's Word. They're going to steer you in a different direction. Then share your struggle with your small group for prayer, for support. God designed us to be for each other, to be with each other, not to shame, not to judge. We're all born with different aspects of our work of art that we're not necessarily thrilled with and that we have to learn through faith and growing our walk with God to be content with and to turn over to him as a living and holy sacrifice. But we're here for each other to support each other through it all. And then don't follow the world's approach. There's a reason why so many people are now seeking to reverse operations that they've had in the past to try to align or alleviate the distress they experience from gender dysphoria, trying to get those things reversed and changed. There are so many people I've seen story after story after story, and I'm not saying it to you, everybody, but many stories of people in tears using words like, it was a scam, and I was led astray, and I was walked right into it, and now I regret it, and now I have lifelong complications from it. I would just challenge you, do not blindly follow what the world says about how to handle your gender dysphoria. There's a reason why many countries in Europe right now are putting the brakes on operations for young people and treating minors with what they call gender-affirming care, which is affirming their gender identity that they feel inside as opposed to their biological sex. Even though those, some of those same countries were the first ones to adopt this. They're seen, and this is, has nothing to do with the Bible. This is just, they are seen that the harm this can cause. Instead of following the behavior and customs of the world, recognize that your body was made by God and treat it as a living sacrifice to him. Get the treatment and supportment that you, support that you need to help your brain be okay with your body the way God made it. Know that all of our bodies are messed up in different ways. But one day God will give us new bodies. And that is a great thing. Romans 8 says, and we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Paul says our bodies are messed up in different ways on this earth. And Paul had this thing called his thorn in the flesh. There was something about his body that he didn't like. His body was messed up too, but then he says, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. You know, there's a reason we're promised new bodies. It's because our bodies are not perfect right now. I know you already know that. Maybe you struggle with a disability or psychiatric disorder or body dysmorphia or gender dysphoria or body integrity identity disorder or a chronic illness, whatever it is, the good news is that God says these are temporary conditions, and he has a new body on order for you. You Just have to wait till it's ready and available. And more than that, these struggles that we face are opportunities for God's power to be shown as we demonstrate faithfulness in the middle of our distress. Now, let me say a few things to specific people who may be in the room or watching online right now. For young people in particular, You need to know that most kids who experience gender dysphoria grow out of it as they move into adulthood. And so don't think that just because you experience gender dysphoria right now that you always will. Actually, chances are very good that you won't in the future. And if you are one of the few that does, the solution is not to fight God's design and follow your mind. It is to seek God's will and let him work on your mind. So be careful not to follow the behavior and customs of the world on this. For parents, let me say something to you briefly because this is so important. Some expressions of gender identity today seem to be the result of social influence more than actual gender dysphoria. Looking at the numbers and the the research and the studies that have been done, it seems that there are many people who present as different as a different gender uh, or also, they may even be becoming homosexual, gay or lesbian, and at least sometimes it appears to be influenced by environment, social media, friends, parents, and other modern factors. That's not to say there aren't other examples. I've, I've said that already. But some of this seems to be a, a social element and a modern movement in a sense that certainly, if you look at the statistics of how many people are identifying that way, and, and I'm not going to get into all the The nuances of that because we don't have time, Uh, but this is very concerning for parents. It's one of the biggest questions I've gotten in all of this. Parents and grandparents, what do you do? Especially when, in some cases, if your kid is in school, there are measures that have been taken to make sure that the parents won't even find out if the kid is experiencing this kind of distress and questioning their gender identity. So what do you do? Here's my advice to parents. You need to love your kids well you need to build trust with them. You need to be consistent in your parenting and in your discipline and your guidance for them. You need to admit when you are wrong. That's one of the most important things you can do. Admit when you're wrong. That's the best way to build trust. Listen, they know you make mistakes. They need to know that you know you make mistakes. So admit when you're wrong. You want them to feel like they can be real with you about their struggles. You build that kind of relationship where you're the first person or one of the first people they will talk to if they are struggling with something so that you can point them to godly influences before they head down another path. Be careful what media they have access to. A lot of media today is glorifying ungodly perspectives on sex and gender. The younger they are, the more control you have over this. There are shows that normalize ungodly sex and gender activity or behavior, and those are shows we need to be careful of and filter out of our Christian homes. Be careful what social media you allow and what parameters you put on it. Do you have the ability to restrict and filter what your kids have access to? Do you have the ability to approve or restrict apps, not just to limit what kind of things they can access, but also to limit what can access them, predators and people that would influence them online? This is something parents should be aware of. You need to pay attention, especially to how you react to people you disagree with in front of your kids. This is so important. How do you talk about other people in your home? Do you slam them or do you show them grace? When something comes on TV that you disagree with, do you show disgust? Do you criticize? Do you yell? Do you belittle? They are watching you react to others. And if they are struggling with something, and they think that you will belittle them, they won't tell you about it until it's too late for you to help them or point them in a godly direction. Now, let me briefly, I know we're way over time here, but hopefully you'll forgive me. I want to talk about pronouns. Uh, This is actually the number one question I've gotten during this whole series. Everybody's like, yeah, 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 sex, intimacy, all good. What about pronouns? What do we do with those? If you'll indulge me for a minute, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey here. The case for and against using preferred pronouns, that is a pronoun that doesn't align with someone's biological sex but with their gender identity, is well laid out, both for and against, in the book called Embodied, and there's a link to that on our website. And I know people in our church who are on either sides of this. I know people on our staff who are on either sides of this issue. I'm going to tell you where I'm at personally, but I want you to know that I believe this falls in the conviction bucket, and there are, there are good cases on both sides for this, really, even though I know some people are so set in one particular way, and they can't see why everybody else doesn't see it their way. I get that. Some people take the path that we are to love others even when we disagree with them. Paul said that he was all things to all people so that he might save some. If Paul were here today, maybe he would say the same thing about pronouns. That is a way that I can love people and be all things to them so that I can reach them. It's a w- way of showing respect to them by using the pronoun that they have selected as their preferred pronoun. Others take a different path, but also from biblical principles. If the gender and sex divide goes against God's original design, and if God really made us male and female, and to try to go against that is contrary to his will for us, as both the Old and, Test- the Old and New Testament seem to indicate, then to use preferred pronouns is to lie by referring to a male as a woman or vice versa. Now, I personally don't ascribe to either of those perspectives. I don't find the argument about the lying to be a super strong one just because language changes all the time and pronoun use Uh, in our minds sometimes gets super linked with sex, but it doesn't necessarily have to be linked with sex. Society changes the way language structure uses, and so if the sociological norm becomes allowing people to choose pronouns for themselves instead of holding them to pronouns based on their biological sex, I don't necessarily think that's lying. Romans 14 says that you should be fully convinced of your convictions in your mind, and if you Violate your own convictions then to you it is sin. So let me just give you a couple examples here. If you have a conviction that for you using alternative pronouns for someone, a preferred pronoun, is lying, but then out of peer pressure in the moment you go ahead and do it even though you're fully convinced that it's wrong, then Romans 14 would say then to you that was a lie. That was sinful. If you have the opposite conviction, that the only loving thing to do is to use their preferred pronoun. But you're around a bunch of like way more conservative people than you, and in the moment you choose to use a biological linked pronoun instead of a preferred pronoun even though you're pretty sure that that's unloving and, and and not good and you're fully convinced of that, not pretty sure but fully convinced, then to you that would be wrong. Do you see do you see how that works? Romans 14 allows for this kind of different view of opinion, but you've got to be be fully convinced in your mind that, hey, this is my conviction, and recognize other people may have a different conviction. Now, convictions can change over time, too, as we learn more things. One example of this is Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian for many years, and then she trusted Christ because some Christians were super loving with her, and she she, uh, accepted Jesus and she became a Christian. She left her lesbian lifestyle. She actually ended up getting married to a man and having a a relationship with him. I think he's even a pastor, I think. And I don't agree with everything Rosaria Butterfield says, but it was very interesting how for many years as a Christian, she said, Christians use preferred pronouns because it's the loving thing to do. It's what's going to reach people for Christ. And just this year, she has come out and said, I was completely wrong about that. I now have a totally different conviction. I don't think you should use preferred pronouns. I actually don't think it's loving. And she points to a bunch of examples of trans people who have since said, actually, it was people who wouldn't use preferred pronouns with me that helped me to realize that I need to reconsider the way I'm going in my life right now. And that's her view. And she's fully convinced of that. And so that is her conviction. I know all of that can kind of be confusing Um, and and it probably doesn't make it easier that there are other pronouns at play too, like Z and Zer and they and them, and there are lots of other ones that have made the rounds on TikTok. I don't know if you've seen those. Really, I would say, in the end, this is a matter of personal conviction on whether or not you should use preferred pronouns. It may be situational. It's something you need to pray about and ask God for wisdom about. Both sides can make their case from biblical principles. Both should be fully convinced, according to Romans 14. Here's where I stand. This is just my conviction. You don't have to agree with anything I'm about to say. And it has less to do with lying and more to do with affirming. Since I believe that God made your body the way it is, and I believe that dysphoria is absolutely real, gender dysphoria is real, but God's word teaches us to not try to appear as a different gender, but to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. I don't feel right doing something that affirms what I believe is ultimately a harmful lifestyle for you. If someone, as an example, came to me with body dysmorphia in the form of anorexia and said, I now want you to use language when you're referring to me or talking about me or to me that affirms my anorexia, I want you to refer to my weight when you talk about me, I would say, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I actually don't think your anorexia is, is helpful or healthy for you. And you may be totally fine with it, but I cannot affirm that for you. If someone came to me with body integrity identity disorder, which is the belief that one of your limbs isn't actually a part of your body and should be surgically removed, that's a real thing if you've never heard of that. And said, I want you to start using language to affirm my body integrity identity disorder because if you don't, that's disrespectful to me. I want you to respect that view that I have about my own body and this limb. I would say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm not going to try to intentionally insult you. I'm not going to try to use language that's going to offend you. But I'm not going to become a part of this view that you have that I actually think is not helpful for you. And, and I believe that's the most loving thing that I can do. So in that case, when someone comes to me and says, I want you to use these preferred pronouns, my answer to that is I am not able to do that because I don't think this is what's best for you and I can't affirm that. Does that mean I'm going to then use biological pronouns that you find offensive? No. And the thing that I've found over the last couple of years is you can... You can get away with not using pronouns, generally speaking. You can change the way you speak and change the way you refer to people and how you do that. It's not necessarily easy because it's such a normal thing for us, but I just will try to avoid using pronouns altogether if that's a situation that I need to do. That's just my personal conviction. But I hope you can see how this is a very personal and extremely conviction-oriented thing that we need to be careful not to judge each other on or shame each other on. We're gonna to come to different conclusions on this. And I don't think there's one Bible verse that says, this is the answer that every Christian has to have on this. So where do we go from here? We really need to wrap this thing up. I know I'm way over. If you take nothing else away from this series, I hope that you will take the statements I'm about to give you, not just from this message, but from this whole series, as sort of a summary and a conclusion for you. First of all, God's design is good. We've talked about that. God's design is good. People messed it up, and we continue to mess it up. We don't always choose our struggles. God calls us to live according to his design, even if it's not easy. God promises to not allow us to face temptation without making a way of escape. We talked about that last week. God commands that we confess and repent When we mess up, when we go against his design, when we sin, God promises to forgive us when we mess up and God gives us his word and each other for support and guidance in this life. He promises that one day we will have new and perfect bodies just as he originally designed. And that is a wonderful thing to look forward to as we all continue with the various struggles and distresses that we experience in this life. I want you to know that if you are wrestling with gender in some way, that we love you and we want to pray for you and support you, and you may not even agree with a lot of what I said here today. That's okay. We still want God's best for you, and we want to do our best to care for you and and guide you along that path if we can. I know that for some people today, there are people in your lives that are wrestling with this issue that you may not have always treated well. You may have said things even behind their back that were unloving, or there are people that you just know they need prayer in this area or this is something that you personally may struggle with, or there's something that I've touched on today that you may struggle with, I would encourage you today after our last song, our prayer team's gonna be up front, come forward and have somebody pray with you, even if it's just for 30 seconds. Just let the body of Christ be the body of Christ and support each other and lift each other up before God today with whatever it is that we are wrestling with or whoever it is that we want prayer for. God cares about you. God loves you. God wants you to have an amazing future with Him, not just in eternity, but here on earth. So offer your body and everything you have to Him and let Him renew your mind. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me today? Father, this is such a challenging subject, but we are thankful for your word and for what it teaches us. It's not always easy to understand, and I'm not even sure how good a job I've done today at communicating it. But Lord, I pray that you would work through your Holy Spirit to help each one of us to understand the path that you have for us. Help us to live with holiness and righteousness and with full conviction, Lord. Um, Help us to constantly learn and grow to know how you want us to behave and act with our kids, with our friends, with our coworkers, with people who are struggling with different things in life that we may not struggle with, Lord, to people that we may disagree with and and we may wanna react in a way that's inappropriate. God, help us to be loving and gracious as your children, your followers who want to follow your example for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.